Good morning. Again, we feel the Spirit moving in the service, especially that last song. It's really fitting for the thoughts that we have today. Uh, supposed to be Mark here today, but since he decided to spend the week prostrate in prayer, <laughs> I guess my uh, week and a half time I had turned into half a week, so here I am. But my thoughts are with Mark. I I thought a lot about what he's going through, and I think it would be hard, very, very hard, and our prayers are for him. We do rejoice that his eyesight can be healed, as we can tell. And a message was sent on Group Me not long ago about, uh, I think Grandma Sheridan Carter seconded that all the, we can't bear enough praise for all that we have witnessed in the last few months. We can't. And it got me to thinking about the valleys that we've gone through some valleys. We've gone and we've come out the other side for the most part, and we've, we've had some. Um, so my theme today is the God of the hill is the God of the valley. The God of the hill is the God of the valley. And mountaintop experiences, we love them. Fresh air, they're few and far between. We don't spend as much time there as we do kind of down in the valleys. But they're also rocky, and um, growth doesn't really happen on top of the mountain. And the farmer in me, if you look at two different types of real estate, if you have the opportunity to buy some for the same price, this never happens. But a rocky top or a fertile low ground, Greg, what would you, what would you purchase? The fertile bottom ground, the, the valley where something can grow. And when we're done today, I'll, just kind of the challenge of do we desire that really? I mean, the, the valleys where we can grow. Do we, at any expense, long for the time of growth? Um, the farmer in me knows which real estate is more desirable. The spiritual part of me doesn't always. Uh, we want the rocky mountaintops, and they're good. They serve a purpose. But growth takes place in the valleys. Life is hot and muggy there. Bugs swarm and predators lurk. There's fields to prepare, to be weeded and harvested. So as we go through thoughts of the valleys, I'd like to encourage us to not ever waste a valley, to not ever waste a valley. And that's been shown by our church body, by families here, in a, in a mighty way. I'd like to turn to 1 Kings 20. 1 Kings chapter 20, we'll read some from there. And as I always do, we'll do some jumping around. But 1 Kings chapter 20 Syria is warring against Israel, and the first battle didn't go too well. Israel's up on a high place, and Mary's on a high place, and the Syrians are defeated. And the Syrians recoil, and they wait for another season of war, and they say to themselves in verse 23, The servants of the king of Syria said unto him, Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And I read this, and I, my mind went to the Titanic for some reason. And I think about that ship and Titan, Titanic, it was a massive ship made to go across the Atlantic many times. And I think if that's possible, it would have happened hundreds of trips, if not thousands throughout time of people traveling back and forth across the Atlantic. And today, maybe in 2021, you can go to a harbor where it's moored as a museum and for $48.99 and $23.99 for your kids and 10 and under free, you can walk on the plank and up and down the deck and see the smokestacks and the big crankshafts and everything about it, if not for one phrase that was spoken before it set off. Someone said, God himself can't sink that ship. And the maiden voyage was the last one. And the lesson we can learn is careful of our tongues and what we say and how we think. And the Syrians learned that. Let's move ahead. Their gods are the gods of the hills and not the gods of the plain. So we'll beat them in the plain. Let's move to verse 26, just down a little bit. 
And it came to pass at the return of the year that Ben-Hadad numbered the Syrians that went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were numbered, and they were all present, all present, and went against them. And the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids. But the Syrians filled the country. You sense a God thing coming on here? And there came a man of God and spake unto the king of Israel and said, Thus saith the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. Therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand. And ye shall know that I am the Lord. And they pitched me over against the other seven days. And so it was that in the seventh day the battle was joined. And the children of Israel slew the Syrians and hundred thousand footmen in one day. For two little flocks of kids, that's, that's impossible except for God. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city, and there a wall fell upon the twenty and seven thousand of the men that were left. And then Hadad fled and came into the city and into an inner chamber. Now the background of this story, the, the wall falling on twenty-seven thousand also, this God defends his honor. Yes, he was he was for the Israelites, but more than anything here, he defended his honor and his integrity and who he is God of. He was called out as not being God of the valley. And this demonstrates that, yes, he was. On the battlefield of the high tops and the valleys, I am God. I am the Lord thy God. And this battle was, it's like the USS Gerald Ford, the latest and greatest aircraft carrier the United States has against a little guppy shipping vessel out of Santa Cruz. It was, it was about that, that way. Clearly a miracle of the Lord. And Syria and Israel came to know that the God of the hills is the same God of the valleys. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We would like to focus on, on seven valleys. And what the enemy intends for harm, he will use for good. And as I looked at these different valleys, they're, they're physical places that have a theme that represents them. And I could spend a sermon on each one of them, so I'm only going to delve into one that deep. We don't have that much time, but we'll go over all seven. The first we come to is, is the Valley of Siddim or the Valley of Sin. This is where Sodom and Gomorrah was. Sin abounds there, and how do, how do we grow in that valley? Might be the question. If the thought is about growth in the valley, we grow in that valley by leaving it, by leaving it behind. Turn to Luke 7 and find a way of how, how we leave that Valley of Sin. One who found it, and it's interesting how a lot of Jesus' dialogue is always in the presence of the Pharisee. Luke chapter 7. I don't have the scripture reference here. Bear with me a little bit. Verse 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. And stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. Now this Pharisee had only thought this. And Jesus knew his thoughts. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one who had 500 pence and the other 50. When they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast judged, thou hast rightly judged. 
He turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman I entered into thine house? Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman hath since the time I came in not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil that is not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, Her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. This woman was in the valley of sin and wanted out. And she grew from that point forward. I believe there was growth in her life from that point forward. Fertile ground was broke open right there, busted wide open to bear fruit for the Lord. Faith sets us free. Truth sets us free. Think of all the healed sickness and restored life in the Bible, but, but the healing of sin and the salvation from sin is, is greater. Think of Lazarus coming back from the dead and knowing that, actually, i got to go back through all that again. And he, he did at some point die again. But healing from sin is forever and eternal. How great of a, of a miracle that is. Next valley we come to is in the time of Joshua. The valley of Eshcol, I believe, the valley of decision. Just inside the promised land. I'm not going to read any from this, but this is the story of the grapes. Where they brought the mighty grapes in and they could see how fruitful the land was before them. But there was also giants in the land. And they face a decision, and often in our life, in our Christian walk, with we, we face decision. Even though we've, we've renounced sin, we've taken upon our heart and our life the way of Christ, there's times of decision. And yes, we can see that the Christian life bears fruit, but it's hard and it's uncomfortable. And we want to go back to what we knew. A lot of these people here were, were trying to just go back to bondage, to Egypt. I'd rather, I know that. I don't want to go into the place of these giants and possibly be annihilated, even though it's promised to us that we'll have it. And they've seen all the miracles of God. Sometimes we face those decisions as well. We know the promise of the fruitfulness in the Lord's service, but we can stumble in fear. We go forward or backward. The Lord calls us out of our comfort zones. Giants, battles, and difficulties, they'd already faced these things. Joshua says, Choose ye this day whom you will serve. Let's be a Joshua and Caleb in the Valley of Decision. And the biggest one I want to focus on now is, is the valley of suffering. Sounds encouraging, doesn't it? But really it is. Really it is. We have the example of a man who had already gone through the first two valleys, and that's Job. One of the first verses in the book of Job says, There was a man of the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. He'd gone through the valley of Siddim and decision, and he had made those choices in his life, and he was set. But still the Lord allowed suffering for his glory, for nothing other than his glory, that Satan would be shown less. To eschew evil is to deliberately avoid, intentionally abstain from. There's times when Job wishes for death's valley. We'll get to that in a minute, too. But really, he just wanted rest and peace. But he's faithful through it all, justified, and restored on earth as well as he was in heaven. Our valleys of suffering that we face in life, there's no way around them. We can only go through them. And those valleys will be there for life, for our lives, whether we're a Christian or whether we're not. That's something to think about. Whether we serve Christ or whether we don't, we're going to face some valleys. And how much better it is to face them with Jesus. I think of the, the poem of the footprints, and I don't have a copy of it, but it's basically 
a man sees footprints in the sand of his life at the end of his time, and he looks back and he sees there was one set of footprints when he was in the hardest times. And he said, Lord, you abandoned me in those times. And the Lord says, no, that was when I was carrying you. And we look back on our life and we can, we can sense that as well. I know in the, my mind went to the thought of times of judgment when Jesus says to those who are unsaved, sorry, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. To allow Jesus to carry us in those times, of course, the main call is that we give our heart to the blood of Christ. But to allow him to carry us, he'll know us. And we'll know him. And, and to yield to that is not always easy for our flesh. If we have relied on Jesus to carry us, we will have a deeper relationship with him. I thought of the time of suffering of, of Corey Ten Boom in a concentration camp with her, her sister. And oftentimes they were they were derode basically as a as a shaming thing with the multitude of people there. And it was something that they hated as well as everything else. And one time one of the sisters said to the other, you know, Jesus went through the same thing in the time of, of his scourging. He says, you know, that's that's right. I never even thought to thank him for that. I'll thank him for it today. Part of the, the, of the weight of Calvary is that Jesus can identify with us so closely are we with him in our times of suffering. That's when growth really can happen. That's when growth can really happen. Suffering can draw us closer to the, to the Lord. Let's look at Psalm 84. A psalm about suffering, but yet it's, it's encouraging as well. Psalm 84. It says, How amiable are the tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will still be praising thee. Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, and whose heart are the ways of him. Who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. Now Baca is known as a place of weeping, or sorrow, or suffering. And here it says, make it a well. This is, this is referring to a valley. They go from strength to strength, every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed, for a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. Now the challenge about Baca we can find is to make it a well. To make it a well. And what happens if we fill in the low place of a valley? It becomes a reservoir. A well of water. A spring of water. Bear with me a moment. Sorry. A well of water not in it, but from it. But from it. Just this past week, I was leaving the house and I saw a, a card on the table addressed to someone that had gone through a miscarriage and that's a way of making something that we've experienced a reservoir of hope for someone else and oftentimes God, God can use our trials to bless a multitude of people um, if we allow that to happen and there's times we need blessed by that as well to seek out the Lord's people 
that we can find blessing in that. That's what is meant here by making making Baca a well. And as we read through this, we also see how much desire this writer has for the people of God. And, and this time of suffering draws a desire for him to be with the people of the Lord, to be in the tabernacle of God. Moses went through his Baca when he fled in the wilderness. And I think about Moses a lot. I how he was basically second in command of all of Egypt. And he lost that in a fit of rage and was sent out into the wilderness. And I wonder oftentimes if he was out there thinking, I blew it, I blew it, I blew it. That second in command, one death away from being Pharaoh, he could have easily passed some laws or found a way of some new technology to make bricks of their own and then set Israel free and make them a nation as Pharaoh. And he probably thought, that was my will, and I, I, God's will for me, and I blew it. But God had his will in that. He had, a, he had his way all the way through it. And as Moses fled in the wilderness, he made his valley a well because he rebuilt his relationship with the Lord in that time and then became a great leader for God's people. He's known as the meekest man who ever lived. Job, Satan allowed, was allowed to strip everything away from him, yet he never lost his relationship with God in it, and his life became a well for many. Many who read the book of Job are blessed, and he was restored. David cannot be said of him that he was a man perfect and upright. He kind of blew that one. But it is said of him that he is a man after God's own heart. The way of the transgressor is hard, but David was repentant and he dealt with the hardship and still was considered a man after God's own heart. We can face personal sufferings in this, in this valley, not fully knowing the Lord's will for our lives is uncertainty. And sometimes we can allow uncertainty to trouble us. I remember as a young man talking with another young man about the future of life. I thought, wouldn't it be great if you wake up some morning and go to brush your teeth after your shower in the fog of the mirror? God used his hand and wrote who you're supposed to marry, your occupation, all that written down, and you just know. And it's just, it's just not like that. And we can have that uncertainty troubles, trouble us, bother us. But the certainty of his word, he gives us free choice in life. We have the certainty of his word that is sure and just, a sure place for our feet. And we can trust in that and let the uncertainty evaporate, knowing the Lord will take care of our lives in the future. Through the struggles, the mountaintops, and through the valleys, he will care for that. We can trust him and set foot forward, even though we are uncertain of the future. His way is set. Fear can also lead us to a place of, of suffering and struggle. Our faith can be deepened by this experience if we seek his peace and, and know it. To learn of the word that perfect love cast out fear. And Timothy says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our God, nor of me as prisoner. But be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before, before the world began. That was Paul's statement. Even discouragement. And I have to admit, I've been reading the past week in another book about farming, a farmer. And my wife was making sure I got pride away from that and into the Word a little more for this weekend, and I needed that encouragement. <laughs> but there's also a lesson in there I, I, I like to glean from his life. And it's, he, he farmed, started farming. He was a city boy, started farming. He married a farm girl and said that she wanted to marry out of the farm, but he left the city and came to the farm, so she didn't really get away in that. But he had four successive years of failures. 
he was wiped out by hail two years in a row and then had a severe blizzard and then I think it was another hailstorm. It was it was abnormal. Four years in a row. And he was a rancher in North Dakota and a farmer and barely could make payments. He was about about done. He said he he looked around and one neighbor got hit with one of those hailstorms, another one partially hit, but it was him every time. They all got affected by the blizzard. But it was him every time. And that's a time of, of discouragement that he faced. But in that time he sought to learn. And and he no till was kind of a new thing then and he noticed the wheat that was mowed flat, the soil under it would would generate more microbial activity, it was better. And he learned from that. And in those four years he changed the way he farmed and began learning from that experience. And those four years of hardship blessed him the next twenty five. And he said, Now I said I'm farming debt free. I've I've made some decisions by learning from that time how to change things and how to look at things. And he made a statement, if you want to make a change, if you want to make a small change, change the way you do things. To make a large change, change the way you see things. I learned to change how I see things in my time of discouragement. Now, there's a spiritual application to us in that lesson. We can learn from that. When we're spiritually discouraged or when we're facing some kind of hardship, learn from it. Learn from it. God has something in that. And it could be a greater blessing than the most joyful time we've ever had. And a farm is, is nothing compared to our spiritual life. We're eternal. What goes on in our business is it's important, but it's really nothing compared to spiritually. And a little lesson from that can magnify big things in our spiritual life. Cast our care on him for he careth on us. Don't let our feelings control us. If we wait to read the Bible until we feel like it, we probably won't. If that farmer were to sit around saying, I just don't feel like farming this year is to wipe out. But he went out with the spade and he studied and he analyzed and he looked and he learned. And he gained in his time of discouragement and moved forward. Um, if we have true discouragement spiritually, seek others as well. And as well as what he learned, he shared that with a lot of other people. A lot of other people have been blessed by his findings as well. And so be it with us spiritually. We can share spiritually what we struggle and bless other people. That's the biggest valley I wanted to touch on. There's just a few more. The Valley of Elah, the Valley of Battle. This is the place where David fought Goliath. And man, I think of that battle and how, how outnumbered by one man the whole army of Israel was. No one wanted to face up to him. But here this lad comes and says, Who defies the living God? David says, I come in the name of the Lord. And in the battles of our life, what we can learn in our struggles, David running to the challenge, running to it in the name of the Lord, slinging, his, slinging the stone. He took it head on. He didn't, analyze very much and sometimes we do need to analyze some but the heart of David to, to tackle that battle head on knowing that the Lord would be victorious why do we hesitate to give our battles of temptation discouragement trying all these valleys over to the victor it's, it's so much like our flesh to do that it was brought up a little in Sunday school of Achan and that brings us to the valley of Achor or valley of correction and punishment this is where God dealt with Achan and it was severe. I don't want to focus on Achan because he perished right there. I'd like to use this analogy on David again because he learned and was given a chance to live and learn from it. David accepted God's correction and lived with it. He was repentant. He fell on his face. He lost his first child from an adulterous relationship from it, wept over it, and he was told the sword in his house would be there, and it was, and he lived with that. It only affected his soul to tenderness. I think of all that he went through and what he saw of his children. 
Absalom rising up against him, Amnon's issue, all these things, and he had a tender heart for all of them through that. Absalom wanted, wanted him dead and to take over his throne and his kingship from him. Yet David had a tender heart for him all the way through the end. When Absalom perished in the tree, David cried out, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. And there's there's power to that. He whom the Father loveth, he chasteneth. <coughs> valley of Gehenna, the, the last enemy which is defeated, it says in Scripture, is, is death. This is the valley of death. What Lathareth got to go through twice. Scripture says, Death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? It's still a valley which brings pain and hurt. But in Christ, this valley becomes light. We can think of Psalm 23. We won't read through it, but most of us maybe have that memorized or would easily recognize it. These are six of the valleys, and I'd like to go ahead and sing, sing the song I have before we go to the seventh valley. The seventh valley is a valley of victory. I'll give you a proof pre-read on the Valley of Victory, but let's sing God on the Mountain. Those of you that know it, belt it out. Those of you that don't, hang on. <laughs> Life is easy when you're up on the mountain and you've got peace of mind like you've never known but things change when you're down in the valley. Don't lose faith, for you're never alone. For the God on the mountain is the God in the valley. When things go wrong, He'll make them right. And the God of the good times is still God in the bad times. The God of the day is still God in the night. We talk of faith way up on the mountain. Talk comes easy. When life's at its best, down in the valleys of trials and temptations, that's where your faith is really put to the test. For the God on the mountain is the God in the valley. When things go wrong, he'll make them right. And the God of the good times is still God in the bad times. The God of the day is still God in the night. Wish I could change one word, the bad times to hard times. God of the hard times is still still there. Final valley is the Valley of Victory, Valley of Jezreel. This is the place of Armageddon, and that's known as the end of time, of course, but it's also the last battle between Satan's army and God's people and Christ. And God, Jesus wins. It says with the countenance of his, of his face, I believe it's the, the fire of his face and his, his countenance. 
There's a song that says, I've read the back of the book and he wins. As we look through all that we've, we go through in life, or all that the Bible, all the evil that goes on in the world, looking today, Russia's overrunning Ukraine, and they say, don't dare interfere, we'll start slinging nukes around. And man, it's, it's just pretty hard to think about what could happen. A lot of people are gripped in the fear, the, the valley of fear of this. But I've read the back of the book and we win. I thought about another book I read about a man that was a conscientious objector in World War II in Germany. He was a CEO in Germany under Nazi rule. And I don't want to go into it too depth. I guess I do have time. But at the beginning of the war, he, he slung his handgun into a pond and made a wooden replica to stick in beside him so he wouldn't ever be tempted through the war to shoot anybody. And he lived through the whole war on the German side. And he would go, he was on the front lines building bridges with crews, and he would go ahead, sneak ahead into towns and warn the Jews that the Nazis are close and they're coming. A lot of them would flee, and he saved a lot of lives that way. Where was I going with this? Um, his, uh, his commanding officer was so sure of German's victory, Germany's victory until he sat down with him one time in a, a bold step of faith to do this, sat down with his commanding officer and shared with him the Bible and read about Daniel's vision and read about what happens in, in time. And through that, that German officer became to realize that they weren't going to win. God had the final say in what took place. He was sovereign, and there would not be a third Reich that encompassed the, most of the whole of the known world that would rule the world. There were these diverse nations that would stay to the end of time, unless Christ came and Hitler was the Antichrist. But he, he began to realize then, it says that officer was deflated for, for quite a while. He would just walk around almost defeated, going through the motions. But often he would call him over and say, read, read to me some more, share me some more, share with me some more. And it took guts for him to do that. It must have been the Holy Spirit's prompting or something. But we know God is victorious over all time, over, over East Valley. Each of these, the valley of victory is the Lord's. The valley of our struggles is the Lord's, our battles are the Lord's. Every one of these valleys belong to the Lord. The last one swallows all, the last, the last valley, the valley of victory. Uh, Corinthians fifteen fifty four. just two verses I'll read out of, one out of Corinthians, one out of Jude, before we close with the closing song. Fifteen fifty four. So when this corruptible have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. In life, it's said in other places that mortality is swallowed up in immortality. And one of the favorite verses I have in, in the Bible is Jude one twenty four, And I'll read verse 23 also. A challenge. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now verse 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. With exceeding joy. It seems like the Lord just desires to take us by the hand when we go to heaven and almost skip with us to, the, to God the Father and say, here's one for whom I have died that has named my name. The valley of victory. Let us delight in it and realize all valleys, every one of them, for our growth, belong to the Lord.